turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll finish up the 11th chapter today. In a message I've entitled simply, The Lord's Supper. Because that is the context of the message here. And the beauty of it is drawn attention to by a problem that was in the Corinthian church. And I want to make that... Uh, an obvious thing for us this morning. Because this is one of those passages that when you first read it, it's kind of, well, that's kind of harsh. You know, that someone would take of the Lord's table unworthy and that it might actually cost them death. I want to remind you that the Lord's table, that, that act, that beautiful act of communion, is celebrating the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. His suffering, the pain. In essence, it's celebrating the cost of your salvation. And so it is a serious thing. It's a serious supper. And I want to also, again, put this into context for you, because it was widely practiced in the early church that virtually every time the church got together, they shared in a meal. And so this is another difference between how we celebrate the church meeting and how it was celebrated then. But then virtually every time the church got together, it was basically a church potluck. So they had a church love feast and they also celebrated communion virtually every time they got together. It's something that we don't do as frequently as the early church did. And there's a reason that it was done very much then. Uh, a vast majority, that's why Paul uses the example of, of those who were slaves, bond slaves, those sold under sin. He uses this picture of slavery because, again, slavery was widely practiced in the Roman world. And so a vast majority of people had very little to eat. Uh, they were on a subsistence living. And so it was part of the love of the church that drew the church together. And so they would study God's word and they would pray and they would fellowship. They would actually eat a meal and then they would celebrate communion. And so it's important to get that picture here or you can kind of get a little bit of a, of a wrong uh, understanding of this passage. And so this morning, the Lord's Supper. Last time we... Learn that in all that we do, we should imitate the Lord. Amen. And then be able to be imitated ourselves. And so he draws attention now to this beautiful uh, celebration that we're going to partake of here in just a few minutes. And so would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning that by the blood of the Lamb and through the word of our testimony, we will overcome. We have overcome. We are overcomers. We are, in fact, overcoming even now. And we pray this morning as we turn our attention now to your word, which is life to us. We pray that you'd bless us and speak to us and anoint us to receive. God, we're grateful for that work of the Spirit that's in us. Lord, that power that we now have to live that resurrected life. We love you. We bless you. We thank you for this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17 here in 1 Corinthians 11. And now in giving these instructions, the instructions that will follow, I do not praise you. It's not a good thing when an apostle says that to your church. Be like me standing up here. You guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. What are you doing? Uh, 
So he, he's really, he's going to, in essence, correct something, and he's going to chastise them a little bit. And I want to be very careful. I'm not chastising you at all. Largely, uh, you guys put a smile on my face when I think about what God's doing in this church. So uh, no chastisement here. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now think of how bad off your church has to be for the Apostle Paul, the one about whom we would actually not know justification by faith. We would not know the grace of God. Think of the book of Romans and how Paul authored that book and how we ourselves are recipients of it. Imagine Paul, the the author, if you will, of the codification of the grace of God, walking into your church and going, man, when you guys get together, it actually serves a, a purpose to make things worse. That's not a good thing to say. So this must be kind of important, and I believe there is a lesson that we can draw from it. And he says in verse 18, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. And therein lies one of the bigger lessons of these remaining verses here in chapter 11. Isn't it crazy how we as a, as a church can become divided? You know, we have the homeschooling families against the public school families. We have the people with some resources against those. We have the soccer players versus the softball. We we have the thin against the more robust folks. We have we have the uh, we have all these little schisms and divisions and things and and sometimes. To our shame, we allow those things to infiltrate the church. And let me share this with you, and I mean no disrespect to anyone. There are people that attend this church that go to one service or the other because someone else will be at the other service. And I, I want to stop for just a moment and say, if that's you, and you're here this morning, that's an issue you need to take to Jesus. Because if the church has become a place where you have to worry about who you're going to see or what you're going to wear or what you're going to do or any of those things, then, then to the church it's a shame. It's one of those things that we ought to be very careful of. When we gather together, no matter who comes here, they should be coming here to see the, the love of the Lord, to hear the word of the Lord, and to worship the Lord, not work out their, their problems that they have with their neighbor across the street. You, you see, part of the problem is, is we don't do what Scripture says, and we don't go, as Jesus reminded us in the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 5. You remember what he said? He was speaking about the issue of giving. He said, Hey, if you're coming to give your gift and you remember that you have something in your heart, and just before this he talks about hate leading to murder, he says, if you have something in your heart, leave the offering, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and worship the Lord. You see, we come here to worship the Lord. We come here to celebrate Jesus. We come here to study his word. We don't come here to try and work out our little petty differences in, in the things that go on in life. And, and it goes from the least to the greatest of things. I can't tell you how many times people say, well, you know, I just don't want to come because somebody two years ago said in a Sunday school class something I didn't like. If that's where you're at, you need to really evaluate why you come to church at all. You need to look at why you're ever going anywhere to church. 
Because if you're, if you're not coming for that right-hearted attitude of worshiping, if you're not standing in awe of Jesus, you're not coming to stand in awe of me. You're not coming to stand in awe of the worship team. You're not coming to stand in awe of the fact that we have the largest parking lot in Running Springs that's flat. You're coming to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and you're coming with other people who are sinners just like you. And so people are going to rub each other a little bit. You're going to have some issues. And those things that go on in the world should not come into the church. They don't belong here. There shouldn't be hurt and hate. There should be love and living in the church. He says, first of all, when you come together to church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Focus in on that, in part. It's not everywhere. It's not in all things. But isn't it interesting how one little divisive issue between two people can start to affect the whole church? Isn't that crazy? Think about it for a moment, because you probably all have a practical example of this in your lives. There's some person who does have a problem with somebody else, and they don't get it resolved, and they come to church, and before you know it, you're forced to take sides because it's not handled. And you know this group, and the other group is over here, and this group doesn't like this group, and because they're at odds, maybe just two people, you have a vast majority of the church choosing sides. Dear brothers and sisters, Let us endeavor to not ever let that happen. We need to remember that this is God's house. And and the things that we deal with, this is where we come to hopefully hear how to solve some of those things. Amen? Not not keep them in perpetuity, you know, going on until finally justice is done. You know, there's something that I've learned in my long time of serving the Lord. I am really glad that I'm not under the judgment of the Lord. I'm going to heaven because I, just as Romans tells us, he is both the just, in other words, he himself is perfect, and he also justifies. He makes me right. And the only way he does that is by the blood of the Lamb. So when we come here, we're a bunch of people who are sinners, who have our own issues. We're going to trip over our own toes. We're going to injure somebody. And the commonality that we have, is we're the redeemed of the Lord. Amen? And we say, I, yes, I am the redeemed of the Lord. Paul said those differences shouldn't cause that division. We shouldn't be picking which service we go to because somebody is or is not there. We don't go on Wednesday night because, you know, I I just don't like that particular person in children's ministry. All these petty things can divide us. And he goes on now in verse 20, and he says, And when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Now he's going back to that agape feast. He's saying everything that you do should bear the mark of the Lord. Amen? Everything we do, whether we're passing out candy in a parking lot, or, or whether we're at a baseball game, or whether we're shopping, or whether we're here in the sanctuary, or we're gathered in a prayer meeting, or we're at a home study, everything we do is actually, to some degree, the Lord's Supper. The reason we come together is because of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and that word Lord means Master. There's only one, one faith, one. Look, look at Ephesians 4. 
There's only one Lord, and he's all of our lords. Amen? He, he is the only Lord. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Now again, make sure you keep it in context. We ain't doing no beer bashes after church, okay? We're not going to start on Wednesday night with a, you know, we're having a wine tasting. That is not going to happen. But during that day and time, again, as I said, they gathered together for that fellowship meal, that agape feast. And at that time, you had a choice, polluted water or wine that was sanitary. And so virtually everyone drank wine. It was a custom of that day. It was necessary because they didn't own frigidaire refrigerators. And so if you took the grape juice and you allowed it to ferment properly, you turned it into wine, you could store that for very long periods of time without refrigeration. And so there was a cultural reason that at that point in time there was wine available, probably wine and water uh, specifically. And so some people drank water, some people drank wine, and some people drank way too much. They also ate too much. And they didn't prefer one another. What's really being said here is, is guys, when, whenever we gather together, we, we should be modeling Christ. Remember the last study? We're to be imitating Christ. Christ came to be the servant of all. Amen? So when he goes through the line at that love feast, he's not the second guy in line. And when he gets down to the other end, he walks away with the plate and it is mounded up about four inches over the top of its capacity to where he's balancing it with his fingertips. And, man, I got all of the chicken legs because I don't like breast pieces. And he got, you know, you, you see what he's really saying is, is, is give preference to other people. So when we gather together as a church, we're to give preference to other people. Everyone else should be first, and we should be last. That is the model that can be imitated, amen? So we do everything that way. My thinking should be, before I go to the Lord's table of grace, which is communion, I need to have lived my life at the table of grace, which is service. Before I go to the table of grace, which is communion, I need to live my life at the table of grace, which is service. I say, Lord, let me be the servant of all just as you were. So I walk by, I get a light plate the first time through, and then I back clean up and get all of it as I come back through. After everybody else's heart. No, it's the whole point. Just want to see if you guys were awake, okay? The whole point of this is, is that we look at everything that way. We reverence the Lord and we prefer others is the way to look at it. We reverence the Lord, we prefer others. I look at other people and go, no, I'm not going to take that biggest slice of whatever. I'm not going to take the largest helping. I'm going to remember that others are coming. I'm going to prefer them. I want to make sure that they know that the Lord loves them. You see, because in everything we do, whether it's in our giving or it's in our serving or it's in our, it's in our work in the church, everything we do should have in view others first. Amen? Isn't that Jesus? He was other-centered, and so must we be. Jesus is simply reminding us through the words of the Apostle Paul. I also find it interesting is as he says these things, 
that in essence it appears that they were looking for the best place at the feast. You see, at that time they didn't have, like we do, folding tables and chairs and could put up tables for everybody. Basically, there were a few facilities within sight of the place where they would meet, and those who were the most prominent got the best seats, and that carried over from the Jewish culture, that those who were of the highest order religiously got the best place at all of the feasts. And so it's just this picture of us looking at other people People and say, man, I want them to know the goodness of God the way I know the goodness of God. And the best way to do that is to say, would you go ahead of me? Here, here's a good seat right here. Why don't you take that? I'll stand. When we do that, you start having people trying to outlove each other. And that is a place everybody wants to be. Amen? You know, when you start looking at it that way and you see it that way, you're, you're going to cause people to fall deeply in love with the Lord because we give testimony to that fact. Amen? We say, man, this is the Lord's house. We are the Lord's people. This is his spread right here that's on this table. And as you partake of it, you're partaking of the goodness of the Lord, and I want you to know the goodness of the Lord. And so he goes on in verse 22. <laughs> Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? In other words, when you come together as the church, it's for a corporate purpose. If you want to gorge yourself, go bake your own cake at home. You know, if you feel like you're, you know, in Jesus' name, you have been set free to go have a couple of cases of bonbons, don't do it so everybody else sees it and thinks that you're all that. Go home and, and do those abundant things. And what's in view here is moderation. And that's true in everything that we do. Amen? That's why I think we need to be careful what we own, what we possess, all those kinds of things. Again, nothing against wealth. Wealth can be a very wonderful thing if used for the Lord and for his kingdom. Nothing against prosperity. Nothing against nice houses or cars or any of those things. But we as the body of Christ have something else in view. And that is, how is someone else going to be affected by the liberties I take? That's been the previous chapters. And so we want to make sure that other people have an opportunity to see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in what we do. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? See, here's here's the, the way it crosses over. And I have been in situations like this. To where it's like the, the person who doesn't have is, is shamed, in essence, because of the way those of us who maybe do uh, act. It's why we try and hit the middle ground. And so, again, being careful, allowing our, our words and our deeds to be imitated because they're Christ-like. For what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Uh, well, the answer is, of course not. And he goes on now in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And so now he begins the instruction on the beautiful, marvelous symbolism that is the act of communion. And I want you to draw on this. He says, I'm just passing to you what the Lord passed to us what we had lived out before us, and what it is that we're actually celebrating. It is monumentally important that we recognize what communion actually is. And he goes on that 
the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the bread. Have you ever circled or underlined in the same night that he was betrayed? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people that it takes me a little while to react and respond. I, I think about things for a while. In my humanness, it's very hard for me to imagine on the same night that Jesus was betrayed, that, that he sat down and finished what we know as the Last Supper. I, I probably would have gone up and gone and cried somewhere. Judas, I can't believe it. Remember what preceded this as they, as they knelt there and met in the garden. Jesus says to them, uh, would you come to the garden? Would you pray with me for a while? And ultimately he says to them, could you not stay awake for just a little bit? He's agonizing. He's praying over the day's events that will come. And, and the disciples couldn't stay awake on that night. The same night. Those thoughts still in his mind. He, he was human, remember? Fully man and fully God. It hurt. Jesus was agonizing over that. The same night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, for this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, the picture is, is that there was no lag time in the life of the Lord. He, he wasn't sitting there going, Well, you know, I'll think about it. You know, I'm not really sure I want to carry this out. You know, after everything, you guys, you ever think about doing good to people who have used you and hurt you and maybe you go home and rationalize why you shouldn't do them good? Jesus didn't do that. On the very night he was betrayed, it was then that he passed along that beautiful picture. I'm going to have the... Elders actually begin to pass out the elements of communion here very shortly. As a matter of fact, go ahead and go ahead and do that while we're. You see, the Lord couldn't praise their actions. While they were getting ready to, to remember this, I want you to remember what it is that broken body represented there. If you remember the prophet Isaiah gave us a picture. You see, because Jesus' body was broken for you and for me. Amen? On the same night, what he's actually saying is, looking forward to what would happen, it hadn't even happened yet, but being God, he knew exactly what was going to happen. And he broke bread with them anyway? You ever thought of that aspect? He's sitting down at that table as he's beginning to, to take all of this into their hearts and their minds through the speaking of these words to them. The prophet Isaiah recorded, for he is despised. Isaiah 53.3, he's rejected by men. Jesus was going through that very rejection that the prophet Isaiah had spoken of 
almost 700 years earlier. Speaking of the Messiah, a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. From him. He was despised. We didn't esteem him. Even the disciples were probably sitting around going, Man, Lord, why don't you deal with Judas? Remember what Jesus would say? What you do, do it quickly. It was always his plan. This is what he came to earth to do. For surely, notice this, he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him as stricken. Humankind looked at the cross of Christ and said, Man, what a pathetic Messiah that is. This is the best God can do? That supposedly God's only begotten Son ends up allowing this to happen to him? For he was wounded for our transgressions. If you have opportunity, go to that passage in Isaiah and circle those fours because they were for you. Amen? He was wounded not for his own transgressions. He wasn't wounded because of God. He was wounded for you. He was wounded for me. He said he was wounded. Literally, it means pierced through. He was bruised for our iniquities. You realize what bruising actually is? It's being hit so hard that it bursts the blood vessels underneath the skin. It, 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 that's the way we are because inside of us, there's stuff that needs to be dealt with. There's things that are buried, they're hidden. Jesus was wounded for our iniquities. Those things no one can see. It's one thing for somebody to give up their life because of something you actually did. Do you realize Jesus was beat up because of what you think? What's going on in your head? Stuff other people can't see. The chastisement for our peace, not his. He was God. He never sinned. Was upon him. And ultimately, verse 5 there in Isaiah 53 says, And by his stripes, you and me, we are healed. So what is being said by the Apostle Paul as Jesus took that loaf of bread, because then it would have been a loaf of bread, and he took it and symbolically broke it. That's why we use broken crackers. 
It's why those crackers have little tiny piercings in them. It's why there are little bruisings on them. If you look at that cracker, you'll see them. There's little tiny holes. There's little bruisings. What this represents is what Jesus took for you, what he took for me. He was mocked. He was beaten. His beard was plucked. He was spat on. He was scourged to the point of of being completely unrecognizable as a human being, exactly as Isaiah said. So as he broke that bread, he said, guys, you aren't really going to understand this. After tomorrow, you'll get it. He said, after you really see it, you'll understand it. But this is my body, which is broken for you. And he goes on after the same manner. He took the cup after, after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of him. What he was saying was, for, for all of these centuries, the tabernacle was a place of death and slaughter and blood. Have you ever thought about what a typical day in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple would have looked like? It, it, it records for us in Scripture that daily they were constantly killing innocent animals because of the sins of people. Around the clock, basically. You could hear the bleeding of the sheep and the cries of the goats and the squawks of the birds as their innocent lives were taken from them. As, as one life was terminated for another. And he says, this is a new covenant. The new covenant not only finished the old, but it literally replaced it. It, it didn't just finish it. It said, now there's a new covenant. In his blood. All that dying that needed to happen, all of that sacrifice that needed to occur, was finished in Jesus. Amen? You ever thought of that? It was finished. It was done. The death of the innocent Lamb of God. The broken body of the innocent Lamb of God. And so he says to them, Man, when you come together in my house, let's keep it about what happened. Let's not make it about the petty things. Let's not make it about our little differences, our likes, our dislikes. To make it about what it, the real thing is. And he says, and often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You're actually saying amen to the finished work of the cross. You realize that? You're saying amen to the finished work of the cross. That's why verse 27 and 28 say what they say. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. To turn it into something else, 
to make it about that thing that you went through is to diminish what Jesus did on the cross because isn't his broken body and his shed blood enough for whatever's happened to you in life? It is. And it is for me too. What he's saying is, is what we remember is what he did. So it puts the focus where it belongs, which is on that sacrifice for you and sacrifice for me. You ever wondered why Paul could so loudly proclaim in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Do you know what it says in chapter 7? Those things which I will to do, I do not do. And those things which I will not to do, those very things I do do. So I find that this war goes on within me, that I find to will is good and it's there. But in the implementation of that, I I just can't do it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thank God, because of the broken body and because of the shed blood, there's your answer. There's your answer. So he says, when you come to church and you celebrate communion, take your stuff to the Lord. Because you you don't want to drag Jesus through your junk. And the good news is, all you need to do is just ask him and he will. He'll clear it up. He'll clean it up. You can go and be reconciled to that person. And so he says... Let a man examine himself. I'm to be looking at Jeff when I take communion. I'm not to be looking at other people. I'm not to be pondering what somebody did to me or said to me. I'm to be saying, for me, what do I need to square away? What do I need to do? What do I need to say? And when I do that, there's enough of me that's guilty to still say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, heal me, work in me. And so let him, in light of that introspection is what's being said, in light of looking inward, not outward, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's take a minute to just pray. And if there's something there that's between you and God, that's maybe between you and somebody else, but between you and God, it's not okay, you need to let him have it. And then we're going to pray and partake, okay? And Father God, together, as your people, Lord, remembering that were it not for the stripes on your back, were it not for the thorns on your brow and the nails through your hands and the nail that went through your feet, none of us would ever see heaven. If it weren't for your blood that poured out onto that dry and dusty Judean ground, none of us would be redeemed. 
if it weren't for the beating you took, the scourging that ripped the flesh off of your body. God, we couldn't be healed. And Lord, we're so grateful that we won't ever have to pay the price ourselves. That you did it for us. And because of that, we do in fact celebrate this morning your broken body and your shed blood, which has made it all possible. And it's because of you that we say thanks. It's because of you we remember. It's because of you we give our allegiance. And it's because of you that one day we know that we will see you face to face here on this earth. And so, God, we bless you. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to this earth. And, Lord Jesus, because you have loved us with an undying love, we, your church, say amen. Amen. Let's partake together. Why don't we stand? How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory See, that's why this chapter ends the way it does. It goes on to remind us not to partake in an unworthy manner. Why? Because it was the blood of the sinless Lamb of God that dripped onto that ground. No more precious substance in all of the universe. And to not discern that is to, to risk God's judgment, really. It's to say Jesus wasn't enough. And I love what verse 31 and 32 paint for us. It says, but if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. You see, if I'll just simply look and agree with God and say, man, I'm a wretch. Save a wretch like me, amen. Save a wretch like us. Why? Because when we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we won't be condemned with the world. In other words, he paid the price of our ransom. He said, what I did for you, you couldn't do for yourself. And because I did it for you, your eternity is secure. And so when you gather, 
Don't bring that judgment onto yourself. And as we gather, we're saying amen to the cross of Christ. You know, every time we come together, now do you know why they had a feast every time? It really makes some sense. It should be a celebration when we gather together. Amen? Because we're celebrating we're not going to be judged and we are going to heaven because of his body and because of his blood. Amen? You got one? Let's do it. And that's the reason we get to worship the Lord. Amen? Amen.